نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد we express our praise and gratitude to Allah Taala we seek blessings upon the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and now we are doing more of Mishkat Masabi and far away. Okay, so uh, today we're doing the uh, biographies of the teachers uh, of Mazhar al-Haq and the author himself, Sheikh Tabrizi. Uh, so first of all, for his teachers, um, they come from the Waliullah family uh, and they symbolize the historical gateway to India, uh, which uh, introduced the science of hadith to India itself uh, and its members uh, showed and started like um, the sciences of hadith uh, and became masters of them. Uh, so I'll just mention some of the uh, some of them like in general, and then I'll start going into detail of each one in specific. Um, it started off with Shah Wadiullah, uh, who was first in the line of transmission for the Muhaddithin of India, and his descendants are Shah Abdul Ad- uh, Shah Abdul Aziz, which is his son, and Shah Ishaq, which is his great grandson. Uh, and they are those members of the great family who are known for their service and hadith in India, uh, and Sheikh Tabrizi. Um, uh, also learned from these teachers. So, going into the biography of um, Shawariullah Dehnavi, uh, he was born in 1114 uh, after Hijra and passed away in 1176 in Hijra. Uh, roughly when? Uh, it's basically 1700s. Yeah. Uh, so, he was uh, born on the 4th of Shawwal on a Wednesday, um, and his father was also a uh, sheikh. Sheikh Abdurrahim Rahimahullah, who was a great scholar and a Sufi. <coughs> so Sheikh Abdurrahman Rahimahullah, he brought him up uh, in his own manner and he taught him Quran, I think, uh, when he was in the age of five. Um, and then he was naturally inclined to it and he completed his study of the Quran at the age of seven. Uh, and he, because of his father, uh, he was able to learn manners, uh, etiquette at a very young age um, to the point where grown-ups were not able to reach the level of mannerisms and etiquette that he had. Then, um, in the seventh year of his life, um, he started studying Persian, uh, and in very few days he finished all the books, uh, and in a year's time he had finished his uh, his studies in Persian, and uh, his syntax and grammar were then mastered by him by the age of ten. And it's said that his mastery of the Persian language and specifically with the syntax and grammar were such that even the scholars of the language itself were hesitant to discuss it with him um, because of how well he mastered it. He married at the age of 14 um, and he continued his pursuit of knowledge. Uh, at the age of 14, he studied tafsir uh, with his father. Uh, and at the same time, he gained perfection in the sciences where he studied uh, in India. Uh, and he was taught by many of the scholars in, uh, in Dari. Then uh, he pledged allegiance Bayah, to his father and he became part of the Naqshbandi school. Uh, 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 and then he also studied Tasawwuf uh, with his father and became a Sufi. Then um, he started studying different fields. Like for example, um, his father, Sheikh Abdul Rahim, uh, Sheikh Abdul Invite, uh, invited fellow citizens, particularly like Islamic scholars and learned people to, to help study. Um, so he started studying many different fields. Um, then when his father died, uh, he started teaching uh, and imparting philosophical education towards others. Uh, so he basically took his position uh, and he became more and more famous, which allowed him to continue his studies. Uh, then eventually, um, basically like 
in his life, he started uh, focusing on hadith and bringing the science of hadith towards the people. Um, so he put a lot of effort in. Um, like for example, he said uh, that the father of Shawriullah Shaykh Abdul Rahim established a madrasa in Old Delhi, uh, and then Shah Waliullah began teaching hadith there and began his study of sciences and hadith there. Then it says that in uh, 1143 Hijra, he visited Mecca and Medina, and he remained in the Haram Sharif at Mecca and Masjid uh, Nabawi in Medina. And he started to study under different shuyukh like Sheikh Muhammad Wafdullah uh, ibn Sheikh Muhammad ibn Muhammad ibn Sulaiman al Maghrabi, who was also a scholar of hadith um, and was known as well the, one of the most well known uh, of his time. Um, and so he started studying with uh, many different shuyukh uh, hadith, like uh, he started studying Muatta and narrations of Sheikh Muhammad ibn Muhammad ibn Muhammad uh, ibn Sulaiman. So after all these studies, um, Finally, um, he started coming to Delhi. He came back to Delhi and decided to start teaching there. Um, and he, he loved his the study of hadith so much, so he started bringing that science towards Delhi. Uh, and it said that uh, he commenced teaching hadith at Delhi um, in the same madrasa as his father that I previously mentioned. Uh, and that way he imparted it towards uh, both his own family and uh, the people around him and brought that science to light in India. Mm -hmm. Then, uh, so just uh, one quick point, all that stuff is very good, mashallah. Uh, so essentially he's bringing the study of hadith to the subcontinent mm -hmm. and most of the premier works of hadith study for the last 300 years are all from the subcontinent. Right. Uh, a lot of times the subcontinent is not given very much respect for scholarship, whereas that's where a lot of the most important scholarship has actually come from. Um, so, I just had a quick question about that. Was this, like, so you said it was in the 1700s. Was that under, like, any of the dynasties or empires, or what the... So, 1762 is when he dies, and so this is the, the Mughals. The Mughals start, give or take, around the 1500s, so they're ruling North India, and their capital is Delhi. I see. So, it's all right there. Okay. So, that was still during the Mughal uh, Empire's time? Yeah, and then what happens is that it gets overtaken by, by colonization. And the East India Company, and then it becomes official British colonization after 1857. I see. After he dies, so uh, he's there witnessing all this stuff happening. You know, he's witnessing colonization. And think about it: this is the same time as the founding fathers of America. Mm -hmm. That's what's going on in the subcontinent. Yeah. Uh, so then uh, it starts talking about his son Shah Abdul Aziz, rahimahullah, uh, and. Well, first of all, Shah Waliullah, Shah Waliullah, he had four sons. Um, they were Shah Abdul Aziz, Shah Abdul Qadir, Shah Rafiuddin, and Shah Abdul Ghani, Rahimahullah. Um, all of them were known for their intelligence, knowledge, oratory, um, and piety, but Shah Abdul Aziz stood out because he's the one who, um, he, uh, he was one who carried over the most from his father and furthered the studies of hadith. So he was born in 1159 in Hijra, um, and he studied under his father, Shah Waliullah. Uh, he was admitted into Madrasa, the Maktab, at the age of five, and began studying the Quran, which he completed very soon. Um, he was also, like his father, very good-natured, uh, had good mannerisms, good etiquette, um, and he continued his studies of um, in Persian, uh, where he studied under his father. Um, and became a master of the Persian language. Um, 
then his education was entrusted to a assistant of Shawariullah, and in about two years after that, he became skilled in different arts of Arabic. By the age of 13, he had also qualified in elementary surf, uh, fiqh, principles of jurisprudence, logic, and scholastic theory, uh, among other things. And then he got admission into his father's circle of studies and received education in hadith from his father. Um, and he studied under his father's eyes in two years' time, all of his books, subhanAllah. Um, and he qualified in all of the sciences and arts at that time, probably when he, uh, sorry, when he was around 15 years old. Um, then he uh, basically, uh, he became adept in different studies, uh, like mathematics, ge uh, geometry, uh, history, geography. Um, so he became a master of subjects within Islam and, um, and uh, even more secular uh, studies. And then basically, uh, he whenever like he started taking directly from his father where he nurtured the seed of his father uh, and worked hard to continue growing hadith in, uh, in India. Uh, he died Sunday, the 7th of Shawwal um, of 1248 Hijrah. Okay, very good. Uh, a couple points to think about is that in the foundational studies, what's taking place? It's knowledge of Arabic, it's knowledge of Farsi. Why Farsi? Uh, I was thinking that it's because of its similarity to Arabic and like its ties with Sufism. So, <clears throat> essentially, uh, Farsi like Urdu. So Farsi and Urdu are, are very, very similar in yeah. terms of their grammatical structure. Uh, from Arabic, it's actually very different. Nevertheless, a major amount of Farsi vocabulary is coming from Arabic because of the history of Islam and Islamic conquest and such. And that was, for centuries, that was the language of high culture. Globally, what's the language of high culture today? English. English. Like the lingua franca of the world is English. Little by little, and faster and faster, it's becoming less so. What is, being what is it being replaced by? Mandarin. And so, so the point is that, uh, uh, especially in the subcontinent, the laity would be speaking their local state languages, but the high culture, the educated class, would be speaking Farsi. And so Arabic has always been the default language of Islamic scholarship, but also for centuries before Shawaliullah, a great amount of, of Islamic scholarship is also in Farsi. Also in Ottoman Turkish, uh, um, and I'm trying to remember one of the other big languages that's slipping at this moment, and for a long time it even becomes Urdu itself. But yeah, those are, those are the, like, the big reasons. Um, and then we see that one of Shawalullah's big contributions, according to here, according to this book, is Hadith, which would make sense because this is a book of Hadith. But it's, it's like Al-Ghazali, um, it's spanning all across the fields. And again, the, the Arab, Arabic default that modern Islam has, another one of, so I said one problem is people don't appreciate the, the, the towering amount of Hadith scholarship from the subcontinent. Uh, another is that it may be fair to say that Shawadiullah is of the class of Al-Ghazali, that he is that big of a scholar. You know, but in, in modern Islam, especially in America, we privilege stuff that's coming from the Middle East. You know. And why is like that pattern so prevalent then, like that? Um, <clears throat> I think some of it's just literally the history of, of colonization and Orientalism. You know, that... Uh, for some reason, uh, people will acknowledge that the Arab world never recovered from the Mongol conquests. Uh, but it's hard for them to comprehend that 
there was uh, a Mongol conquest around the 1200s, 1300s, um, and literally the Arab world does not recover for the next 800 years through to today, and who knows how much longer. Whereas the Muslim world is flowering, you know, in, in Turkey, in the subcontinent, in, in Spain, in different parts, sub-Saharan Africa, eventually Southeast Asia and such. And, and so uh, I literally think it's just, you know, that is colonization in study. That we don't realize how much is played out in terms of our own consciousness of, our, of ourselves. That when we think of the madrasas of the Middle East, we somehow think that they're more majestic than the madrasas of the subcontinent. Not necessarily the case. You know? yeah. Okay. And then um, we have uh, Mawlana Shah Muhammad Ishaq, who is a great grandson of Shah Abdul Aziz. Um, so Shah Abdul Aziz, he had no male offspring. He had three daughters, uh, and the second of them had married um, Sheikh Muhammad Afsan, rahimahullah. Um, and so uh, Shah Muhammad, uh, Mawlana Muhammad Ishaq, was born to them. Uh, he was born on the sixth of Dhul Hijjah, eleven ninety-seven. So, because Shah Abdul Aziz had no son of his own, he focused his attention uh, on Shah um, Muhammad Ishaq, rahimahullah, uh, and he brought him up in the tradition of the family. Um, so, uh, so he, Shah Muhammad Ishaq started studying under his grandfather Shah Abdul Aziz, um, and he took up teaching, and for 20 years he taught hadith to students under the supervision of his grandfather. He was known for his devotion to the Prophet Sunnah and his deep love for him. Uh, and his biographers assert that he never did anything against the uh, against the Sunnah. Um, and he also, like his father, uh, sorry, like his grandfather uh, and like his great grandfather, he had um, great intelligence and great um, mannerisms, uh, which made it uh, which made it easier for him to teach and made him more of a charismatic figure. Uh, a look at his face convinced people that it was like the faces of those who had been blessed with the company of the Prophet sallallahu um, When Shah Abdul Aziz died, uh, he chose his grandson Shah Muhammad Ishaq as his successor, and all disciples and students turned to him, and he began benefiting them from the treasure of his knowledge. And as his successor, he was accorded the same honor and respect that every leader in his family had received. Um, but despite all this honor, he continue to stay uh to stay humble and continue teaching hadith uh he performed hajj uh and then he returned home back to india and then when he was back in india after his hajj um he continued guiding people and training them uh in hadith very good okay do yeah. more uh yeah so lastly uh sorry two more uh is uh <coughs> allama nawab muhammad kutubuddin khan dehlavi who is the compiler of the mazahir haq Okay, so what does Allama mean? Do you know? Allama, um... So, Alim is what? Someone who is a scholar. Allama is a big scholar. Okay. That's why we call him Allama Iqbal. It's basically saying he's a big scholar. You know, so that's what Allama means. Okay. Yeah. So, Allama Nawab Muhammad Qutubuddin Khan Dehbabi, the compiler of Mazar Haq. He was the son of a wealthy, respectable family of Delhi. His forefathers had been close to the royal family and honored them with high offices and posts in return for their services. He enjoyed high respect in the royal court at Delhi, and the king had great regard for him. He was born in 1219 at Hijra, uh, and after his elementary education, he was entrusted to uh, Shah Muhammad Ishaq, Mawlana, sorry, Mawlana Shah Muhammad Ishaq, 
Um, and so he received his blessings and gained a high degree of excellence in hadith. Uh, and so he learned also from some of the scholars in the Haram Sharif of Mecca and Medina. He, uh, he resembled uh, Shah Muhammad Ishaq uh, and continued to stay toward the Sunnah uh, and toward the Hadith. Um, and so he was, the, the writer of this writes that he was highly learned and pious and righteous uh, and he was also well-mannered. The greatest achievement that he had um, is the Urdu translation of Mishkat and its Sharah explanation of Mazahar Haq. Uh, and he had many other writings to, his, uh, uh, to him. And he went to Mecca where he died in 1289 in Hijrah. Okay. Very good. And you said you had one more? Yeah. Imam Muhayyad Sunnah, Qamir al-Bid'a, Abu Muhammad Hussein ibn Mas'ud al-Farah al-Baghawi. This one was hard to say. Yeah. Um, Basically, so, remember him as Al-Baghawi. Yeah. Okay, Al-Baghawi. Uh, so, he was uh, born in Baqsur. Uh, he uh, was born, uh, like, it's between Harat and Marwa. Um, and he was called Al-Baghawi for that reason. Um, he was a front-rank scholar of his times, uh, also a muhaddithin. Uh, and so, he also studied among the hadith. He, like, he also studied in jurisprudence. Um, and so... Uh, that's why the people around him they considered him his leader because he was an expert in both jurisprudence and in hadith um, he studied uh, the science of Quranic recitation uh, and he was uh, he was revered as a great reciter of the Quran uh, a great Quran uh, and in spite of this he was very humble um, despite all of the praise that he was given um, he uh, he'd gotten the title Muhayya Sunnah directly from the Prophet Sallallahu um, Historians and scholars have written that when he finished writing his book, Sharah al-Sunnah, he saw the Prophet Sallallahu in a dream. This part I actually had a question about because I was like, what is the legitimacy of that? Uh, because we attribute dreams usually to the Prophet Sallallahu uh, Alaihi So this part, when I was reading it, didn't really make sense to me. So, so a couple things to notice. Yeah. Look at what it was stated about Shah Waliullah. Look at how small this is. Yeah. Right? Even though this person is literally late 1800s. Yeah. Okay. And it, this person is still probably bigger as a scholar than everybody else alive today. Yeah. But compared to Shah Waliullah, look at how small he is. Yeah. Okay. Shah Allah gave himself the name Shah Waliullah. What does Shah Waliullah mean? Oh, uh, Waliullah means a friend of Allah. So it's Shah. Like in Urdu. Like. Say it. King. Yeah. Okay. So he's the king of the awliya of Allah. Okay. That's the title he gave himself. So isn't that like kind of takabur? Sounds like it. But <laughs> what if it's an objective truth? But how could we tell if it's an objective truth? And so we're saying you can reach that point where you can. <laughs> I like how your smile literally just went away in, in, in shock. <laughs> uh, he would not be the first person to make such claims uh, about himself. Uh, over the years and was taken as legitimate you know and not only did he claim himself that he also called him and I love talking about Shah Allah he called himself Qutub Az-Zaman so remember we were talking about the hierarchy in the other class the hierarchy of people spiritually there's an idea of of that the entire spirituality of the human race or at least of the believers rests on a certain number of specific people okay and then when they die, they get replaced by someone else. So let's say 36 specific people who probably rest on 12 because there's always 12 in all these things, right? And then 
Hey, uh, do you have just a couple minutes? Let me just finish up. Yeah, thank you. And so then, <coughs> let's say that rests on 12, which all rests on one person, meaning the Iman of the entire human race, you can trace down to one person of each era. And he's saying, I am the Qutub of my Zaman. Sounds like the Kabur, right? Yes. But someone can, for lack of a better term, objectively determine that that's who they are. But then, like, what would be the benefit of, like, outright saying that? Like, but, even, but, even, like, if if that might objectively be true, then, like, is uh, there really a point to call yourself Shah Wadiullah? Yeah, like, I mean, why do you need to? What are these possible reasons? Uh, I guess to show his own importance in, like... So it could be that, but his scholarship already shows that, so what else? Um, because there's a bunch of posers that are making similar grand claims about themselves. And so, to shut them all down, he's coming across then with all this scholarship. So, when the Prophet, peace be upon him, is claiming to be a prophet, he's not just telling you who he is, he's also shutting everybody else down. Go. And he's saying, here's the Quran. Bring it on. Go. So that's one thing. Now back to the point about the dream. If he's already a trusted scholar, then this is not as big of an issue, but there would also be a system of tests to see if people if people buy it. Yeah. I mean usually for titles, it's probably also related to what's going on in society. You know. That you have charlatans that are touching that are turning people away. And so the auth- people of authenticity have to do various things which outside of their context might seem strange but might make sense in their context. Okay. One of the big things that we teach in my Islam class is Shah Waliullah is the first person to translate the Quran cover to cover as a Muslim for Muslims. He translates it into Farsi. And and so critics, and now I've forgotten most of the material, most of the history, but the critics are saying you can't do that because you can't translate the Quran. You literally can't do it. It's an interpretation, which means you're going to exclude other readings of the same ayahs. Then on top of that, you're, you're cutting people away from the actual Quran. People aren't going to have to learn Arabic anymore. And his response is, look what's happening in the world right now. This is to save people's iman. Right. Whereas, you know, prior to that, that was a bid'ah. That was an innovation. You know, I mean, still, everyone's still praying in Arabic and such. And the reciting in Arabic, uh, but to have some understanding, in the same way we have English translation, that's what they had back then. And I think everybody appreciates the importance of English translation. Yeah. Okay, anything else? No, I think that's it. Okay, alright. So, <laughs>